Romans 3. Randy's got Bibles, I think is the rumor. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. He will remedy that need. Romans 3, we're continuing our study in Paul's Gospel of Grace. 30, 30? 30 years ago, give or take, my brother was driving across Nebraska. I've told this story before, but it's one of my favorites. 30 years ago, my brother's driving across Nebraska in a vintage Mustang that he bought for my uncle in Denver. He's driving back to St. Paul. And it's a vintage Mustang. It's a sin to drive slow. So he wasn't. When he noticed the highway patrol coming up behind him, looming large in his rearview mirror, lights all a-flashing. He pulls over, but the highway patrol doesn't do what they usually do. Didn't pull up behind him, didn't put his fingerprint on the taillight. No, he just pulled up next to him, rolled down his window, signaled for my brother to roll down his window, and he said, how's the engine? My brother said, like trick question, um, good? No, seriously, can you keep going that fast? Okay, questions that the highway patrol doesn't usually ask. My brother said, um, I guess I probably shouldn't. The, the highway patrol said, no, no, you definitely should. There's a tornado coming behind us. If, if you can keep going 80, 90 miles an hour, you'll be fine. Any slower than that, you need to go dive into a ditch right now. Now, my brother was already enjoying the car very much before all of that happened. He was enjoying the car. The rest of the way home, he enjoyed it a lot more because he knew what it had saved him from. And that story is not unlike the one that Paul has been telling us so far in the book of Romans. He's writing to the church in Rome, and he's been describing in vivid terms, right? In graphic detail, the wrath of God, the judgment of God that has been following them, gaining on them, coming after them, coming after every one of us. The wrath of God is coming after sinners, and that's all of us apart from the love of Jesus Christ. Right? Amen? You, yes? Okay. If, if we need to go back and review that, we can, because if, if we're not square on that, nothing else is going to make sense. We are all sinners apart from the love of Jesus Christ. Paul's been writing to the church reminding them of that. Asking them, do you understand? Do you realize what it is you've escaped? He's writing to a church. A church like this one. A church full of people professing Christ. And even so, he's reaching out and he's almost shaking them. You get the feeling that if Paul could, he'd, he'd reach across the miles and just grab them by the collar and shake them. I don't know if togas have collars, but you know. Do you understand what's happening here? Do you, do you get the enormity of the threat that you were facing, the eternal punishment that was waiting? He's been taking the time to make it clear, painfully, painstakingly clear, because he knows if they don't understand what they've been saved from, they'll never fully appreciate what they've been saved to. We were just reminded a month ago Almost two months ago now, the destructiveness of a tornado over in Andover almost convinced Caleb to not come. He, he said, what happens there? 
I said, you have hurricanes in New Jersey. Calm down. But we were reminded of the destructiveness of a tornado. Levels everything in its path. But that's nothing compared to God's wrath. Because the tornado passes and the cleanup begins almost immediately. God's wrath never stops destroying. God's wrath upon a sinner never ends. It continues forever. And unlike a tornado, there's no outrunning it. Can't run, can't hide from God's wrath. And, and, and in fact, now that I think about it, in a way, the story that I told about my brother is kind of backwards. Because a sinner in the path of God's wrath is, is sort of in the opposite position that my brother was in because no vehicle can outrun God's wrath. That's, that's been the thrust of Paul's message. No vehicle can outrun God's wrath. No sacrifice, no good works, no religion, not even Judaism. Not even Judaism. This is where we left off. Paul has been saying not, enough, not, not even Judaism has enough horsepower to save a sinner from God's judgment. Only one thing can. Only one thing does. Only one thing ever will. Faith in Jesus Christ. It really is the opposite situation from my brother. Because the only hope the sinner has is to abandon whatever they thought was going to save them. Whatever hope that they were clinging to and throw themselves face down. Bail out of the religion, the philosophy, the good works, the idolatry, and go face down and pray and ask for forgiveness. That's going to be Paul's point today. As we continue chapter 3, that's Paul's point today. He's going to pivot this morning away from judgment, what we've been saved from. He's going to take a pivot toward salvation, what we are saved to, and the means by which we are saved. This morning, Paul gets to the gospel. We've been waiting for it. It's here. This morning, Paul's going to talk about the necessity of the gospel, that everyone needs it. He's going to talk about the availability of the gospel. Anyone can have it. Anyone can receive it, respond to it. And he's going to be talking about the singularity of the gospel, the uniqueness of it. Except we might not get there. Let's see what happens. We're picking up where we left off in verse 9. And we're joining Paul already in progress. He left off last week with a full head of steam talking already about the universal necessity of the gospel. He just told his readers, he just told us, those of you who are Jewish, like, like Paul was Jewish, those of you who think that you've escaped God's wrath because you're Jewish, not so much. God's chosen people, yes, but it's not enough. You might be Jewish, you're still sinners. You still need Jesus as much as anyone. That's where we left off. As we, can, as we continue... Paul's imagining his reader now. Remember, he's got this imaginary reader he's kind of going back and forth with. He's imagining his reader, verse 9, responding to what Paul just laid on him, saying, well, what then? What are you saying, Paul? What are you getting at? Are we better than they? Are we better than they are? Are they better than we are? The Greek actually allows it to be both ways at the same time. They're better than us. We're better than them. Doesn't matter. Paul's answer is No. Neither. They're not better than us. We're not better than them. Not at all, he says, verse 9. For we've previously charged, I've said already, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. We're both sinners, all sinners. And every man and woman since Adam has been born a sinner. 
As it is written, verse 10, there's no one righteous, not one. I wince a little bit when I read that verse. Not because of what it means, but because my pastor used to use it all the time. You know, somebody says to you, how you doing? We reflexively say, I'm good. Oh, there's no one good, not one. That was his always response for 15 years I was with him. It was so annoying. But he was right. There is no one righteous. There is no one good, not one. And sometimes we forget that. Or at least sometimes we talk like we forget that. We talk like it isn't true. I caught myself doing it the other day. I was recommending someone to do a job for someone in the church. I said, he's a good guy. He's not a Christian, but he's a good guy. He'll treat you right. What did I mean? I meant he's not going to cheat you. You know, this was someone who works in the trades. He's not going to cheat you. He's going to do honest work for you. You'll get what you pay for. You'll probably even enjoy having him around. But none of that makes him good. Nothing he does in the world, nothing any of us do, can make us good. Not in God's eyes. Not in God's estimation. Nothing we find in the world can make us good. Apart from Christ, none of us are good, even a little. If you want proof of that, Paul continues in verse 11, if you, if you don't believe me, look around. There's no one righteous, he said. And when he said it, he was quoting from Psalm 14. He's going to go a little deeper into Psalm 14 now. There's no one righteous. There's no one who understands, verse 11. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. It was true in the Old Testament. It was true when David wrote it. It's still true today, Paul says. And it's still true in our day. No one seeks after God. God seeks after us. Some people say they're seeking God. I'm trying to find God. I'm looking for God. What they usually mean is they're looking for a God made in their image. They're looking for a God who will either tell them that they're all right just the way they are, keep on keeping on, you're fine, or a God who will tell them you can do what needs to be done to fix up what isn't okay or to offset the not okay stuff that you've done. That's what people usually mean when they say, well, I'm looking for God. They're looking for validation, that they're okay or that they can make themselves okay. If we were genuinely looking for God, we would know deep in our soul what we would find. If we're looking for a God who sees all and knows all, then we'd know that we would find a God who is aware of our guilt, of our wickedness, of our selfishness. If we were looking for that God, we would find a God before whom our only hope would be mercy. But we wouldn't look for that God because we're not wired for it. We're not wired to admit our guilt, to confess our wickedness. We're wired to do what our ancestors did, what Adam and Eve did. What did they do? Hid. Verse 11, Paul says, we do what? Turn away, turn aside, run and hide. We look for ways to deny our guilt or dig out from under our guilt. 
We look for a path to intellectualize or philosophize our sin away. We look for works or religion we can use to offset our wickedness, only to find that it's still true. No matter what we do, verse 13, there's no one who does good, not one. And then, in case his reader still asks for proof, Paul lays it on him, verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and mercy are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here Paul bails out of Psalm 14. Psalm 14 has served its purpose. He moves on, and here in six verses he quotes from five different psalms and two verses in Isaiah. And collectively... The reason he assembles this together is he's trying to give us what one commentator calls an x-ray of the human race, a diagnostic assessment, a diagnosis of who we are. And who we are, he already told us, verse 9, we're sinners. We're born that way. We're born S-I-N positive. We're born in sin, a genetic condition we inherited from our ancestors, who inherited it from theirs, who inherited it from Adam and Eve. We're sinners, and we prove it by sinning. And it's important we understand it works that way. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And boy, do we sin. Our sin nature manifests itself at every opportunity, right? Humanity's words are sin. That was verses 13 and 14, lying, cursing, hating. Our words are sin. Our actions, verses 15, 16, and 17, our actions are sin. Murder, trouble, destruction, misery, conflict. As a species, we're selfish, verse 18. We ignore God. We disregard others. We serve ourselves and only ourselves. The human race is a race of sinners. Sinners who sin, and anyone looking at us, Paul is saying, Jew, Gentile, pagan, heathen, doesn't matter. Anyone looking at humanity with their eyes wide open will reach the same conclusion. With their eyes wide open, not everybody's are. I spent three years in grad school studying psychology. Some of it was helpful. Mostly the practical part, the counseling skills and so forth. The theoretical part of it was awful. The books we were assigned to read, the authors, the scholars, the practitioners we were expected to admire. I've ranted about this before. But a huge number of, of psychologists and, and people theorizing and, and, and writing books, whole schools of thought are based on the premise that people are good. That in humanity there is an innate drive towards goodness and wholeness and unity and integrity. I wasn't saved when I was in school. I'd never read the Bible. I, I heard snippets of it at Mass on Sunday mornings. But I'd never read the Bible. I'd never read Romans. And I still could buy what they were selling. Humanity is good? What planet are you living on? Look, look around, I tried to tell them. This is not the world we live in. This is not who we are. It would be if it wasn't for the conservatives. And I thought about that because I, I, was, I was somewhat left of liberalism at the time. So when someone said it was the conservative salt, I was predisposed to agree. 
But it, 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 it doesn't work. Conservative, liberal, it's all of us. And that's Paul's point, continuing verse 19. Paul's point is Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Jew, Gentile. Now we know that whatever the law says, verse 19, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Humanity, Paul just said, is wicked. There's no one good, not one. And we prove it by doing not good things. And still addressing his Jewish reader, he says, and dude, you should know that better than anyone. The Jew, Paul says, should know that better than anyone. Why? Because Israel was the pilot program. Israel was the beta test. Israel was given the law. Israel received a clearer picture of right and wrong than anyone and still fell short, horribly short. Thoroughly wicked. What does it tell us? Paul asks verse 19. It tells us what's true for Israel is true for humanity. We don't have to continue the experiment. We already know the conclusion. Analogy. Our baptism is scheduled for July 31st. And as we schedule that, we start to pray, and please do pray, that by the end of July there wouldn't be blue-green algae in Lake Afton. Some years there is, some years there isn't. Between now and then, every week, the county is going to send inspectors, and they're going to take a boat out to the middle of the lake, they're going to drop a container, they're going to pull it out, and they're going to test it. And if the level of blue-green algae passes a certain threshold, no swimming, which means no baptizing. They don't test the whole lake, is the point. After they test their sample, they don't wonder, well, I wonder if there's algae in the south end. We took the, the sample from the north end. Maybe there's no algae in the south end. Maybe if we go down deeper, we'd get to a part of the lake where there wouldn't be algae. No, if the sample has algae, the lake has algae, and they stop running tests. If Israel, with all of its advantages, Israel, with the law and the prophets, if Israel is polluted, the whole human race is polluted. We don't have to keep running the tests. Jew and Gentile, verse 19, both guilty before God. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And you know the illustration. The law is the knowledge of sin. A thermometer doesn't cure your flu. It just tells you that you have a fever. The thermometer can tell you, yeah, you have an infection, but it can't do anything to heal the infection. A mirror shows us that we're dirty. It doesn't wash us. The law can't save us, is Paul's point. It can show us we need saving, and boy, do we need saving. It can show us that salvation is an absolute necessity. And Paul goes on to say, and what you need to understand, it's an absolute necessity, and it's absolutely possible. Sin makes salvation a universal necessity. Jesus, in Jesus, we have the universal availability of the remedy for sin. In Jesus, we have the availability of the forgiveness that we need. Through Christ, we have that. Through Christ, it's available. No other way, through no other name. 
but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Paul's saying the law can't save, it can only condemn. He's reminding us that a God of perfect justice can't ignore, he must punish. But Paul's alluding to the fact that before creation, even before God laid the foundations of the world, he had a plan, a plan to satisfy his justice and offer forgiveness. A plan, verse 21, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul's saying, hey, every Old Testament rite and ritual and sacrifice and holy day, every aspect of the law anticipated Jesus. The, the plan that Daniel spoke of and Isaiah spoke of and all of the prophets talked about anticipated Jesus. It, it pictured, all of them pictured, spoke of, celebrated God's plan to pay for our sin with the blood of a substitute. His plan to convey, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. It's mind-blowing. It's breathtaking to all who believe. Jew, Gentile, atheist, pagan, heathen. For there's, there's no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And to all, forgiveness is available. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That was our universal baseline. That was the starting place for all of us. That was ground zero for you and for me. Sinners condemned to an eternal death. But if we believe, just, just believe. Believe what? Believe that we are sinners. Believe that we need forgiveness. Believe that Jesus purchased our forgiveness at the cross. That he paid the price. Verse 24, that being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation for his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sin that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Say what you want about Paul. The brother can write. <laughs> What's the short version of what he just said? We can be forgiven. There's more going on here, obviously. And I mean, there's a whole theology of salvation in those four verses. We're going to circle back next week and we're going to plumb the depths of what we just read a little bit. This morning, I want to keep going. Because I want to get to what Paul says next. Paul, Paul, Paul just got to the gospel, finally. <laughs> finally, got to the gospel. Reminded us of the gospel. Reminded us. Because he's talking primarily to believers. Believers who have trusted, obeyed the gospel. He's talking to believers mostly the, the way that I am this morning. But he's also slowing down enough to say, and, and I'm going to also, if you haven't gone to the cross, you need to. If you haven't gone to the cross and found forgiveness in the name of Jesus, you need to. My brother needs to. His name's Andrew. His wife is Allison. He's got two sons, Connor and Liam. He's still in that car racing, trying to escape. He needs, he needs to get out. He needs to bail out. He needs to cry out. He needs to fall to the ground and pray. Jesus, will you trade places with me? 
Jesus, will you take my sin and the punishment for my sin? Jesus, will you forgive me and give me your righteousness? My brother needs to do that. Maybe you do too. If you do, let's talk. Seriously, after service. I'll probably be out in the hall. I might be up here still. If you haven't decided what to do with Jesus, if you haven't made your mind up about the cross, let's talk. But for most of Paul's readers, and I think for most of you this morning, that's already happened. People have gone to the cross, found forgiveness. And it's to them that Paul is primarily speaking. And it's, and it's to them and to us this morning that he asks a very important question. Verse 27. Where is the boasting then? Where's the boasting? All week long I was outlining this message. And, and this is where I was going to pivot to singularity. Because Paul's point is that we contribute nothing to our salvation, and that makes it unique among all of the belief systems on the planet. Jesus says, I am the way, the only way. Verse 22. I'm the only way to righteousness for those who believe on me. Jesus and Paul, pointing to Jesus, tells us, not all roads lead to God. There's one road, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the road of Calvary. And all that is still true, and it's still important, and it's still going to be here next week, or the week after that, or whenever we come back to it. Because the thing is, yesterday as I was reading and praying, and starting to put the message together, I outline it through the week, and then Saturday it, it starts to take shape. Verse 27 gripped me, and I couldn't shake it. Verse 27 just jumped off of the page and I couldn't stop seeing it. I had thoughts that I thought were the Lord's thoughts about where to go with the application, things to draw from Paul's presentation of the gospel. But if we look at verse 27, where does Paul go? What application does he draw from his own message? He doesn't dwell on singularity because he's already talked about that. Verse 27, what is Paul speaking of? Humility. He asks, verse 27, where is boasting then? And he answers his own question. It's excluded. It's nowhere. There's no place for it in the gospel. There's no place for it in the Christian life. We don't get to boast in our salvation. We don't get to boast about it, brag about it. We don't even get to be proud of it because we didn't do it. All we brought to the cross was the sin that made the cross necessary. That was our contribution. We did all the sinning. Jesus did all the saving. Our worship teams have been bringing in hymns lately, and, and, and I've been encouraging that because there's such wonderful theology in the lyrics. And if I'd been thinking, I would have said, hey, today would be a good day to do Rock of Ages. In my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die forever, eternally. Which is what Paul told us, right? Told us today, he's been telling us for three chapters. We brought nothing to the cross except our sin. Jesus well, he didn't just do the heavy lifting. He did all of the lifting. He did all of the work. What can wash away our sin? Question. Answer. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You know, a lot of times when we sing that, we really hit the, the two beat and the four beat. And that's not wrong or criminal. It's just how Western music works. He washed it white as snow. That's just how music works in our culture. But, but we end up with, with an interesting emphasis. We end up with an emphasis on the washing and the whitening. In that song, in a lot of songs, white as snow, white as snow, though my sin were a scarlet. Paul's point, verse 27, Paul's point is he washed us white as snow. Jesus did. He washed us, verse 27, not the law. He washed us, not our works. He washed us, verse 27, and by faith we enter in. He washes. So what do we got to be proud about? Nothing. It's excluded. No place for it. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Our response to the cross should be nothing but deep, deep humility. So why over the past few days have we seen the opposite from so many, from, from so many in the church? Yeah, I'm talking about Roe being overturned. And praise God that it has been. God is still a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. Praise God that Roe has been returned, overturned. But I don't understand. I do understand. I was going to say I don't understand. I do understand. But I am so saddened by the response of so many Christians. Because it sounds like what Paul just told us we don't get to do sounds like boasting. And, 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 it, and it might be how I found out. Because one of the first things that I, you know, the first thing you hear, the last thing you hear, kind of dictate your perception of things. One of the first things that I heard when the court made their announcement was people texting, we did it. We did it. We overcame the baby killers. So, so maybe that colors everything that happened after that in my mind. But since then, I've heard more things like that. We overcame the baby kill. Really? Let's break that down in light of what Paul just said. First of all, who overcame? Make no mistake, this was God. Yes, believers were used of God. We mobilized and campaigned and promoted, refused to stop praying. Refused to let the issue go after decades. Refused to give up and voted. And voted for officials who voted for justices who overturned Roe. Yes, God used the church, but God won this victory because God appoints leaders. God turns the head of kings and courts. We've got no right to boast. If it wasn't for God, listen, if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't value the lives of the unborn. And if we did, if we decided to, you know, as an idea or, or even as an ideal, we wouldn't work for it. We wouldn't sacrifice for it, for them. Did God use the church? Sure. But if it wasn't for God, there'd be no church. Anyway, you come at it. This is his victory. But here's an even more important question. Yeah, the church was active in seeing Roe versus Wade overturned. Who opposed overturning it 
Who is lamenting that it was overturned? Who is planning right now their counterattack? Souls Jesus died for. Those pro-choice people, those enemies of the gospel, those unrighteous, those unholy, those just don't understand. Yeah, look back at verse 11. (laughs) Wasn't that all of us? But, But they're just full of cursing and bitterness. Yeah, that was us, verse 14. They're shedding innocent blood. Yeah, that was us. Verse 15. That's all of us. That's who we were. And if that's changed to the extent that it's changed, if we are in fact today new creations in Christ Jesus, why is that true? Why has that changed? Who changed us? Jesus. We didn't seek him. Verse 11, we didn't, we couldn't. He sought us while we were sinners, full of bitterness and hatred, selfishness, selfish as anything. While we were sinners, he came for us. He died for us. And he died for those who today disagree with us. Okay, hang on, they're doing more than disagreeing, Patrick. Protesting, bowing, cursing, sinning, killing. All true. All sin. Why are they sinning? Because they have a sin nature. They sin because they're sinners. They have a sin nature. How does it make sense to hate them for that? Because who else has a sin nature? We do. Who else has a sin nature? Here's a curveball. The children in the womb we've been praying for and that we've been protesting on behalf of and that we've been wanting to protect, they have a sin nature. So on what basis do we love one and hate the other? On what basis do we love the unborn sinner and hate the living, breathing sinner? On what basis do we hate the abortion advocate or even the abortion provider? We can't. We can hate the sin. We must hate the sin. We have to hate what God hates. But the pro-choice people in our lives the pro-choice people in your social media feed, the pro-choice people in the streets, they're not the enemy. They're blinded by the enemy, brainwashed by the enemy, serving the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're tools in the enemy's hands, but they're still souls Jesus died for. They are also imago Deo, made in the image of God. We don't get to hate them. We don't get to hate anyone. Not if we want to call ourselves Christian. Not if we want our lives to honor and celebrate and glorify Jesus who paid the price while we were his enemies. Do not hear what I'm not saying. Abortion is not okay. And I'm not suggesting we give anybody any room to think we believe that even for a moment. 
I'm just saying there's what we say and there's how we say it. And I'm saying humility is still the currency of the kingdom. Humility points people to the reality of the gospel and the beauty of a Savior who humbled himself and died for us. Pride always, always and only pushes people away. The Supreme Court decision is righteous. And praise God for it. I'll say that again. But even as we celebrate it, we got to recognize it's only going to deepen the divide in our nation, right? 22 states in the next 30 days are going to outlaw abortion. Praise Jesus. There's another 22 that probably won't. There's around half a dozen that are, that are on the fence. Kansas is one of them. Be sure to vote on August 2nd. But the debate isn't going to go away, is my point. Companies like Dick's Sporting Goods, Paramount, Netflix, Disney have already announced they're going to continue to finance, to support abortion. Big Pharma is ramping up. The abortion pill already accounts for more than half of the abortions in this country. Big Pharma has been ramping up to make it available by mail to all 50 states. New companies are already sprouting up to, to provide abortion tourism. Hey, come to our state, stay in this luxurious place, have your abortion. It'll be like a vacation. What's my point? My point is that the Supreme Court re ruling hasn't changed people's minds, and it's not likely to. I've read some articles. It may not actually decrease the number of abortions in this country. That may or may not be true, and we can pray that it's not. But here's what I know. What is going to change people's minds? What will change people's hearts, if anything will? Jesus. And people indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus, yielded to the Spirit of Jesus, loving everyone, even our enemies, even those who declare themselves our enemies and God's enemies in the name of Jesus. What will really change our nation? Jesus' people caring, not just for the lives of the unborn, but for the souls of their parents and the souls of the protesters. And yeah, even the souls of the abortion providers, caring with words and with actions, caring with our votes and caring with ventures of faith. I've sh I've, I'm sure you've seen the same posts that I have and, and had the same conversations that I'm having. It's not about the babies, those Christians, those conservatives, it's not about the babies. If it was, we'd have better health care and better child care, better maternity and paternity leave, better support for moms who are already struggling and children who are already suffering. I'm going to suggest the wrong way to respond to that is to just argue, hey, you're talking about quality of life, I'm talking about an opportunity to live. That was my response for a long time. And not for nothing, it's still a really good point. If I'm talking to you. If I'm talking to someone who already agrees with me. Or if I'm talking to someone who's expressed a real interest in understanding where we're coming from. I had a conversation like that last week, even before the announcement. I had a friend reach out and he said, hey, Supreme Court announcement is probably going to come down this week, next week. Can you tell me how this makes sense to you? I said, are you really asking or are you just venting? He said, no, I really want to know. You're a smart guy. Tell me how you think about this. And so I said, it, it's a quality of life versus opportunity to live. He didn't agree with me, but, but it was a decent conversation. But see, for the person who looks at the court's decision 
And they've already decided it's an attack on liberty, it's abuse against women, it's apathy or antipathy toward the poor. If we're not careful, we're just going to pour gasoline on the fire. What are you saying, Patrick? Let, let them walk away and think they're right? No, I'm suggesting that in humility, in humility, we'd be willing to say, you know, you make a good point. We'd be willing to admit the church needs to step up. Is it wrong to say that? I don't think it is. I think we need to say that. Two reasons I believe that. Two reasons I think that the, we, it's okay to say the church needs to step up. One, if I acknowledge that the church needs to step into the space and serve the underserved, if I say, yeah, you know what, I would agree the church needs to do a better job being not just anti-abortion but truly pro-life, I might get to continue the conversation. And I might get to talk about how God is pro-life and how Jesus saved my life and wants to save their life. If I admit that, that, that there might be something that we can agree on. The second reason I think it's okay the church to say the church needs to step up is the church needs to step up. Study after study, survey after survey, all say an overwhelming majority of women pursuing an abortion would keep their babies if they believed that they would have the necessary support. And a significant percentage of those women are churchgoers. What does that say? It says the women in our midst are not confident the church will be there for them in their pregnancy. We need to step up. Question being asked around the country this weekend is the question that's going to be asked again and again in coming weeks. Who's going to take care of the babies? Probably someone has already asked you that or hurled that, that, that your way rhetorically. Who's going to take care of the babies? Who's going to take care of the children? Because people will adopt babies. Older kids? Thousands and thousands of older children waiting for parents, waiting for foster homes. Who's going to take care of them? I've heard a lot of wrong answers. Who's going to take care of the children? Well, you should have thought of that before you decided to have sex. Who's going to take care of the children? Next time, try crossing your legs. Who's going to take care of the children? Next time, try using a condom. Who's going to take care of the children? I don't know, but it's better than having them chopped to pieces. The better answer when someone says, who's going to take care of the children? We will. We need to be that answer. We need to be part of that answer. And that's the right answer because it was Jesus' answer. Jesus didn't say to us, you broke it, you buy it. Jesus didn't say to us, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Jesus didn't say to us, you should have listened when we covered that in class. He didn't say anything of the, of the kind to us. What did he say? What did he do? He came and took care of us. He died for us when we couldn't take care of ourselves. What did Jesus do? He said to the Father, I will take care of the children. 
within hours of the Supreme Court ruling, a pastor friend of mine in South Carolina posted on his website and posted on his Facebook page, if you are pregnant in our community, come to us. We will support you in your pregnancy. We will adopt your child when, 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 it, when he's delivered, when he or she is delivered. You want the WWJD answer? You want the what would Jesus do answer? That's it. Because that's what he did. When we were under sin, verse 9, when we were born of sin, he paid for our lives. He adopted us, we read in Galatians. Today, he supports us. I don't know if our fellowship can make that offer right now. I think we probably could once or twice. I wish we were in a position to make that a blanket offer. I don't think we can. But man, I was driving here this morning and I we passed a QT and on the QT had one of those yellow safe place signs. They got them on QTs and on fire stations and on libraries, safe place. It's a national campaign, places that, that get some training. You can drop off a child there, no questions asked. A baby, a toddler, a teenager, and, and, and they'll, they'll keep them safe and get them to a hospital or get them to family services. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great if we could hang on a sign that said safe place, bring your children here, we'll take them to a family. Or we'll help you be a family. I want to, I, I want to, we need to work toward that. I was going to say I want to, we need to, we're called to. We've started to. Over the last year, our relationship with, with child and family serving ministries has deepened and widened. People like Embrace and Treehouse, Hope in the future and the work that they're doing in fostering. Youth Horizons trying to break the cycle of fatherlessness in our community. I'd love to partner with an agency um, that, that helps people adopt, that facilitates Christian adoption. We gotta do this. The love of Christ commands us. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us to love unborn children and those who don't yet understand that the unborn are children. We've got to love them. We've got to love them. Changing the law of the land is good. But Paul reminded us this morning, the law doesn't save, cannot save. God's law can't save, certainly man's law can't. The law cannot save. If the law could save, if the law could make righteous, Israel wouldn't have found herself in exile for 70 years. If the law could save, Israel wouldn't find herself under judgment for 2,000 years and counting. This week's ruling might save lives. Praise Jesus. But we need to not stop there. We need to set our sights higher because God's sights are higher. God desires not just to save lives, but to save souls. And the one who saves does it not with law, but with grace. That's the gospel, family. Jesus took away our judgment and replaced it with love. And that's a message that deserves to be delivered with love. And it's a message that's only credible if it's delivered by people committed to loving, visibly, tangibly, sacrificially committed to loving, to living out the gospel that saved us. Let's be those people. 
Lord, we say that and we don't know completely what that means. We don't know how. We need vision. We need funding. We need servants. We need a lot of things. And you are God. Be our vision. You are God. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. Meet us in the vision that you impart to us. Supply our every need. People, technology, infrastructure. Lord, you know what we need better than we know. You know what you want to provide beyond what we dare ask, what we could think to ask. Lord, meet us. Lord, use us. Lord, love. And minister grace through us.